Hey everyone, my name is Ajay Tucker, host of the Ajay Tucker podcast, the only comedy tennis podcast that talks about our political and societal culture as a whole. My name is Ajay Tucker, as the name would suggest. Happy Thursday. Hopefully you guys are spending time with your family and friends, getting ready for the weekend, watching the end of the line open as well. There's a little bit of tennis topics that we'll talk about today, but we'll focus more on the societal political aspects for this episode because of this ha- there hasn't really been a lot of tennis news and tennis, tennis topics to get to, but we can obviously discuss about Andy Murray and his scheduled return at the Nottingham Open, as well as skipping Roland Garros. We can discuss what to expect from the French Open. I know it's just two, three days away, but I really want to expand on that thought and the players and how they can rise up to the occasion and what certain specific players can rise up to the occasion. We can discuss Joe Rogan's comments, which are kind of overblown in my opinion. In my, and, 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 and to be honest with you, I think it's kind of dumb. Uh, but we'll get to that. Uh, we'll discuss the Joe Budden accusations as well. And we'll discuss the Ellen Show. So not that many topics today. And not necessarily focusing most on tennis, but still interesting to watch and uh, to see play out. So we'll obviously start with what to expect from the French Open and, you know, these next few days as well. So in my opinion, you know, now that we're going into Roland Garros and the end of the clay season as well, I think it's very interesting to look back from afar and to just, just sort of look at the crop of players as of now and see and sort of predict where this can sort of lead. And a lot of times, a lot of people will be, will be like, okay, who do, you, who do we think will win? You know, who do we think will succeed when it comes to Roland Garros? And obviously, when it comes to what to expect and who to win, it's going to be Nadal. Simple as that. It's, it's going to be Rafa Nadal. He's, and listen, I want to say this. You know, I know Rafa Nadal is the top of the head. And he's probably going to win his 14th French Open title. I mean, he's a heavy favorite. Having said that, I think it's important that we sort of look from afar and say, okay, even though Nadal has the best chance of winning, who else can really step up to the plate and deliver in a way that we haven't really seen before from those individuals? You know, and I think what's important to realize is that even though Nadal is still the favorite, you know, even though he won against Joker 7-5-1-6-6-3 at the Italian Open Final. And while I do think that, you know, there is a good chance that Nadal and Djokovic do have the ability to play against one another at the French Open Final. You still have to watch out for individuals that have sort of shown that they can really succeed and thrive within the clay court, within the clay setting. Right when you look at Stefano Tsitsipas and Sasha Zverev, you know as I was alluding to in the previous podcast, go check it out, episode forty, the best uh, recapping the best tournament. That's the name. They are still individuals that I think you should at least keep an eye on. Right, Stefano Tsitsipas won Monte Carlo and didn't drop a set in Monte Carlo. He had one of the best showings at that tournament, if not the best showing in the tournament. And he lost an adult in three sets at the Boston Open final. He didn't lose, he didn't drop a set until it was rough and adult. On the other hand, with Sasha Zverev, Sasha Zverev won the Madrid Open, didn't lose a set until Berrettini, and lost in the quarterfinal to Nadal in Rome. But in route 
to the Madrid Open. He actually won against uh, Nadal. I think it was the quarterfinal, semifinal of the Madrid Open. And when you look at the overall body of work of both Sasha Zverev and Stefano Tsitsipas, Zverev won the 2017 Italian Open in two sets against Novak and won the 2018 Madrid Open against Team. You know, so I, I think it's very interesting. Uh, or sorry. Yeah, he won the 2017 Italian Open and the 2018 Madrid Open. You know, so I think it's very interesting to at least watch it play out, especially with uh, the next gen of players, because I do think they'll have a somewhat decent, if not good showing at the French Open. I think they'll give Nadal and Djokovic a run for their money, you know. And, you know, as, as well, in, in terms of other players that you should actually keep an eye on, you know, keep an eye out for Aslan Karatsev, Jonik Sinner, Andre Rublev. You know, these are young players who are extremely hungry for that title and for that spotlight. You know, when you see Andre Rublev play against Stefano Tsitsipas at Monte Carlo for the final, even though he lost in, in straight sets to Tsitsipas, and even though there were signs where he was sort of not necessarily acclimated to that environment and not necessarily understanding of how to sort of function within that space, at least he was able to progress to that final. And, you know, I think those are the individuals that you should at least be mindful of, especially as we approach the beginning of the of French, of the French Open. So, I mean, I'm extremely excited to see what's going to happen, what's going to transpire when it comes to these players. And hopefully they can be interesting and, and fun to watch because overall it's going to be a really interesting tournament, a really interesting Grand Slam. And I'm not so sure about the uh, COVID rules in Paris. I'm not so sure. Maybe they're allowing uh, fans to watch. Maybe they're allowing full capacity. I'm not so sure. I think it's a little bit worse in Europe than it is in America. I mean, things are open in America. I mean, uh, I don't know about any other place, but here in uh, Massachusetts, it's open. And, or in Boston, it's it's going to be open at the 29th, so I'm, I'm, I'm stoked about that. But if there are fans, then, you know, that's an entirely different dynamic. And how they approach Nadal as he wins his 14th, I mean, I think the way that they respond to Nadal versus how they respond to Djokovic, because Djokovic has sort of been, you know, has sort of been downgraded in terms of public opinion over the past year or so. I, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out as well, you know. Will the fans bring a, a, a different factor the, to the match? Will they bring in a, a different vibe to the match? And will they effectively sort of disrupt the pace of play of the match? I mean, all, all those questions remain to be seen. And hopefully they're able to, the tennis players can, can be able to bring the best tennis they, that they've been able to do so far. And, you know, that's something that, you know, should be of the mind of these next few days and in terms of their preparation for Roland Garros. So again, I just wanted to get into that. Um, I don't know. Obviously, I think Nadal is still the favorite and anybody who thinks otherwise, come on, you're living under, I I don't even want to say a rock because that's offensive to people who live under a rock. You're living under a bus. You're living, you're li- you're living under a crater. Like, yeah, I think Rafa Nadal's gonna win. So, 
But I still believe that there's competition that we can at least watch and players that we can watch that we can sort of distinct from Rafa Nadal style to an Andre Rublev style or a Kravtsev style and how their styles sort of mesh together and how they can offer a stark difference in terms of their playing style to sort of better themselves against Nadal in terms of whenever they play against Nadal or against other talent as well. So that's sort of my thoughts on the French Open. So, all right, so let's get into Andy Murray, the person that inspired me to play tennis. So Andy Murray, it was, there was news yesterday that Andy Murray is scheduled to return at the Nottingham Open. And before then, there was also news that circulated that he was going to skip Roland Garros, which obviously was predictable. You know, him and Roger Federer are, you know, both skipping out on the uh, Roland Garros or both skipping out on the French Open. And this obviously stinks. You know, it, it really does. I want him to play Roland Garros, but, you know, obviously... I can understand why he's competing at Nottingham. You know, his best playing surface as of now, and this may change, but as of now, his best playing surface is grass. It may be hardcore, but, I mean, he's 0-5 for 5 at the Australian Open final. Yeah, it, it's... Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, his he's won two Wimbledon titles and one U.S. Open, so obviously... Him playing on grass will be better than him playing on the hard court, and you know I I, I wish him well. You know I, I hope he do, I hope he's rested and can be active and healthy uh, for the Nottingham Open. I think it's sponsored by Nature Valley. I, I kind of like the name Nature Valley Open over the Nottingham Open, but uh, yeah, I mean he's scheduled to return, and I, I'm happy because you know he's the main reason why I got into tennis. Uh, that 2013 Wimbledon final against it was Novak Djokovic versus Andy Murray was the main reason why I got into tennis. Obviously, the first match I ever watched was, surprisingly enough, the 2008 Wimbledon final with Federer and Nadal. But the main reason why I got into tennis was because of Novak Djokovic and Andy Murray. Uh, where he won against him 6-4, 7-5, 6-4, 6-5, 7-5, 6-4. And it was just one of the best matches I ever saw because of just how much he meant to that audience. Again, he, even though he's Scottish, he identifies as British. The, what he meant for England at that time, I mean, I don't think anybody could replicate that. You know, maybe Leicester City, maybe winning the Premier League title. But overall, what, he's, what he meant at that specific time for England, I don't think that could be replicated within tennis because it was 77 years uh, since the British won the uh, Wimbledon final, it happened on July seventh, twenty thirteen. I mean, it was on Wimbledon Sunday, so there was nothing going on during that time. I mean, Premier League season ended like a month. Or no, it didn't end a month or two ago, but it was still going on. Uh, it was just interesting. I mean, no, Premier League season ended two months ago. What am I saying? It was just one of the best. You couldn't have written it up, written it up any better, and you know I'm I'm just happy to see him succeed and uh, to see him at least being the in, in like at least like competing, you know, at least being in the mix. So where like he can he can actually be like a legit a legit a, a legitimate competitor, like a, leg, a legitimate competitor, you know? 
because again you can't discount Andy Murray like especially on his best surface which is grass you know and hopefully he's able to bring it and play some of the best tennis that he can possibly can you know so that's my overall opinion on Andy Murray and his return at tennis so yeah I mean it's it's sort of interesting man like you know I mean because I sort of mirrored my play after Andy Murray you know I mean he was a notorious counter puncher he was very sort of passive with his ground strokes and then all of a sudden during the middle of the rally he would just be more and more aggressive start to punish his opponents while being at the baseline and it really succeeded against players who were really tall like especially like the John Isners of the world I mean it, it, it he was able to really succeed after those who really forced themselves to go at the net because it really utilized his ability to lob and to find shots that can pass their his opponent and whether it would be down the line or cross court the fact that he, he would able he was able to add that much more pace to his ground strokes it just made it all them all all that much better for him you know so i mean i really view him as like an immense inspiration in terms of how i play and you know I, i'm very interested to see to see how he's able to come back and play against comp, uh, play against players who have been who have drastically improved over the past year or so since he's last been on the circuit or last been fully committed to that circuit so yeah that that's my overall opinion and you know hopefully he's able to you know just play the best tennis ever so um yeah okay i'm a little bit ahead of schedule here but uh let's get into the political societal aspects of this culture as well um i will be honest with you like i was a little bit mad when he wasn't able to commit to beating Novak at the Australian Open, I'm like, come on, at least win this. Like, like whenever you would reach the Australian Open final, I'll be, I'll be like, man, man, oh man, I just know he's gonna lose. Like, I just know. Like, he's like, if he was a sports team, he, he would be the Buffalo Bills of tennis players in terms of playing at the Australian Open. You know, like, I I love Andy Murray. Like, he's he's my favorite tennis player. But, man, like, it, it was such a bad experience just watching him play the Australian Open because he just knew he was going to lose to Novak. And it, it just, it just, it was just bad. It was just really, really bad. Anyways, uh, let's get into Joe Rogan's straight white male comments. So, apparently, Twitter is going after Joe Rogan for what he said, uh, saying that, you know, bending down to the cancel culture mob or woke mob is making straight one straight white men not be able to talk and he was sort of giving a, he was sort of having a conversation with joe list but with which by the way go listen to joe list good comic uh he has like a comedy central special out right now uh go check him out uh but he apparently Twitter was mad at joe rogan for comments he said about uh how the cancel culture mob is not letting straight white men talk uh and I think the outrage is dumb. I, I think this is just... I just think the Twitter mob is just going after him on this... And got him trending, by the way, uh, for the dumbest of outrages to ever have. Like, it's just so dumb. 
you know, there was no news circulating at that specific moment in time besides Israel-Palestine and obviously the mainstream media, the so-and-so journalist of Twitter don't want to cover that. So they have to cover some culture war kind of stuff. So they just picked a Joe Rogan and just tried to be mad at him. It's either Joe Rogan or Dave Portnoy or... Yeah, that's about it when it comes to people getting mad on Twitter. Like, I mean, that's about basically about the two people that I can go after on Twitter is Joe Rogan and Dave Portnoy for the dumbest of reasons. But again, there was no news circulating. They wanted someone to be mad at because they didn't actually want to cover the elephant in the room, which was the Israel-Palestine affair. So they just got mad at Joe Rogan. And this is, a, this is an example of the culture war arguing over dumb crap so that instead of focusing on economic foreign policy substantive reform and decisions that are make, being made at the top of the helm by individuals in politics or in, in office instead of focusing on that we're focused and drawn over to joe rogan which is just dumb it's just so so dumb to just focus on that instead of focusing on things that actually could benefit individuals overseas you know instead of talking about actual policy on healthcare reform instead of arguing about having a single-payer health insurance form uh, or health insurance instead of focusing on a non-interventionist foreign policy we're instead focused on the dumbest of culture wars uh, type arguments and it's just not beneficial for anybody you know and obviously this will surely die down within the next 24 to 48 hours because that's what culture war issues often focus on and that woke mob and cult cancel culture mob will prey on their next victim you know it's just dumb man it, it just really it really is dumb because the same people that are going after joe rogan and sort of condemning his comments on straight white men are also the same people that haven't really said a word on helping out palestinians you know like and again i'm not the best expert on israel palestine so um i don't but like you can't like sit here and say that the palestinians have been disenfranchised because they have you know forget about hamas forget about the palestinian government just hard-working palestinians within sheikh jarrah have been disenfranchised for so long and the fact that people on twitter are going after joe rogan instead of at least focusing on you know what's happening in the middle east i mean be be consistent at least you know you can't be like anti joe rogan and then be pro vehemently pro like israel like and anti-palestine at the same time like you can't be like, like that that makes no sense whatsoever but anyways like i don't know I, I use the term journalist loosely loosely because at this moment in time, like, what even is a journalist? I mean, there's only like two or three journalists left in America, right? It's Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, and Michael Tracy, and that's about it. Like, there's there are hardly any journalists. And if there are journalists, it's usually like people uh, who cover dumb things like Clubhouse, you know, and yeah, that's that's basically what journalism has dwindled down to. You know, it, it's it once was going after the government and really finding out government information that was not public to the overall public. Now it's just 
dumb culture war stuff that leads to polarization and division amongst races. And I, I just think it's dumb. I really do. And hopefully this will certainly die down within the next day or so, but I think it's overall a bad thing for our culture and for just for our society in general when we just focus on this instead of focusing on actual policy and actually focusing on those who have consistently and constantly have destroyed the lives of brown people and black people you know joe rogan's not the person that's going after brown and black people it's the it's those in power you know it's it's the banks it's it's the government you know those are the ones that go after poor and disenfranchised people on a day-to-day basis so and by the way like i think joe rogan is probably the most influential comedian of all time i just do i i think he is and, and you know you can argue about the semantics you can say oh andy kaufman is or no lenny bruce is or or no it's patrice o'neill i know i think joe rogan is in terms of just how much he how much he's meant not only to stand a comedy but just for the culture in general i mean everything he touches just turns to gold you know like the man if he brings a person on his podcast well that person's going to get a good amount of exposure you know maybe not during a spotify run but you know pre-spotify if you are on rogan you're going to get numbers and if you're able to build yourself a platform well and if you're able to spawn other individuals then those individuals also go up as well so he is the most influential comedian of all time just for that now the man went from news radio to becoming news radio and that's just that's the american dream like the man is able to like focus on things he's really he's really passionate about and really enjoys and was able to make a career out of it you can't get more american than that you know only in america can that happen you know the joe rogan experience cannot happen anywhere else besides america so uh, i i don't know i i think going after rogan is a little too much you know because again it, it, it just focuses on the worst aspects of our political discourse so anyways yeah i mean going back to like you know how much influence joe rogan has had i mean the man is going to austin and you know much has been seen about the austin scene i don't think it's going to be as successful as people think it will be uh but yeah i mean if he's able to at least get like 50 percent of the audience he was able to attract in the comedy store then i i think it's going to be a success you know and he's he's building a club down there so obviously you want to see comedians go down there and sort of you know, right off of Rogan's coattails um, to each their own. I don't really support that. I think if you're a decent enough comedian, you should at least like stay in LA or move forward and go somewhere else and actually have your own audience that people can actually focus and, you know, pay attention to. But to each their own, if you're going to Austin, then go go join Austin. But overall, I think it'd be better and most beneficial for your career if you're able to go somewhere else and start your own collective you know, not just be under the Rogan wing, because if you're under the Rogan wing, you'll always be known as the Rogan wing. And if you're going to move to Austin, then you'll always be known as under the Rogan circle, as opposed to being under your own circle. 
so yeah that's just my overall uh opinion on the joe rogan uh outrage so anyways moving on let's get into joe button so there's been certain accusations going against joe button such as rory and maul and how they've been mistreated by joe joe button uh in terms of a business perspective and how they weren't offered full transparency and full ownership of their joint podcast and also olivia dope has been in the mix for apparently being harassed by joe button and i honestly like don't know where to start with this so if you guys don't know joe button and i'm sure not many people know about this because it's very it's a very insular podcast but uh joe joe button has a podcast named the joe button podcast started with rory and maul uh he originally named the podcast i'll name this podcast later name renamed it the joe button podcast they had a pretty good decent run i think had is the right verb to use because i think it's over now but they had a pretty good decent run started on youtube started on just hosting their podcast anywhere they signed a Spotify deal that lasted for two years. And they were getting really good numbers. And they were attracting really big guests. You know, Chance the Rapper, Vince Staples. Pusha T was also in the Spotify run as well. They were able to bring him as well. Um, and over the next two years, especially during those last three months, uh, their relationship with Spotify soured. And if I had to guess why, it's probably because of Joe Rogan's deal with Spotify. They saw the numbers. They were mad. They were saying Joe Budden specifically was mad because they weren't. He wasn't offered full transparency. He wasn't offered full ownership. He thought they were lying about the numbers to him, and he sort of channelized that on his podcast. And he was really bending towards the credence that there was un that this was under being that this was a racist attack which i don't understand why i mean you signed the deal uh but he was under the impression that this was anti-black that you know they were sort of cheapening him out that they that he wasn't getting paid adequately and he sort of let spotify know for the next for the next month or two months or so about his displeasure with spotify and he leaves Spotify on a sour note. And he goes back onto YouTube and sort of branches it out on YouTube. He, he starts the Joe Budden Network, which is basically just a YouTube channel. And he has different podcasts underneath that umbrella. I think it's like one or two podcasts. And this was like a clear just... A, a, this was just a clear comeback to Charlemagne's Black Effect Network. So then he goes onto YouTube and out of the blue, he announces on his podcast that he signed a deal with Patreon saying he was the head of creator equity. And basically the deal was essentially him essentially being a mascot for Patreon. He didn't get any money out of it, out of that deal, out of that deal. And if you're, and if you're, if you understand Patreon, you basically just host your podcast onto Patreon. You get people to sign up. There are different tiers, $5, $10, $25. You make up the tiers, your fans sign up for it, pay the money and expect the product in return. So it's not necessarily a deal with Patreon. He's just deciding to uh, host his content up there for a price 
for a fixed rate per month. And his co-host, Roy Armal, were very mad at Joe for, again, not showing transparency with the business. And Joe Bunn decided to fire him. And it all culminated to Roy Armal addressing the rumors by going to what uh, WTF Media Studios, hosted by Alex Media and D- uh, Weezy WTF. And they dropped an hour-long podcast about it. Uh, about their displeasure with Joe Budden, and they talked about a change in Joe Budden's de- uh, demeanor and how they weren't respected and how they weren't able to, uh, and how they asked for an audit on the books, and they just <laughs> Joe Budden just gave them an Excel spreadsheet, and their pod really did numbers. I mean, it was two dollars. They had over two hundred thousand people watch it and they made four hundred thousand dollars i mean i'm sure they spent like two hundred three hundred dollars on studio space i mean that's a pretty good come up for them you know and i'm sure vimeo takes a cut of that but overall that's great for them i mean they made a lot of money on that and then all, all of a sudden on monday it was announced that olivia dope or i'm not so sure her name i think that's her name olivia dope who worked at the joe button network for her podcast on monday came out saying that joe was harassing her and made made an unsafe workplace environment and yeah here's just my overall opinions on the joe button thing hopefully i gave you a nice abridged version on it because i don't know where to start with joe button the man is such a manic narcissistic sociopath that i don't know where to start with him i i really don't uh but yeah I, i do think this is the last straw for joe button i don't see how he can turn it around at all i really don't uh, I don't think any network will collaborate him, with him whatsoever because of what he did with Spotify and just how small the the business really is in terms of that world. Um, and with what he did with Rory and Maul, because, again, Maul was, is the brother of the co-founder of Rockefeller, who is also... Who, which also was co-founded by Jay-Z. You know, I mean, Rockefeller was co-founded by Maul's brother and by Jay-Z. So, I mean, what will that do with the relationship between Jay-Z and Joe Budden? Will Will Jay-Z really support Joe Budden if Joe Budden is not able to bring the numbers and actually has a strained relationship with other individuals within Spotify? I think that's a very interesting thing to see. Also, looks like Charlemagne and Joe Budden's relationship has fallen within the cracks as well, especially with what he did to Andrew Schultz, dropped like an hour-long special on them on YouTube. And yeah, on them, when I'm saying it, when, which I'm talking about, Charlemagne and Andrew Schultz. Kevin Hart also jumped in, talked about why he felt like what Joe Budden did was extremely wrong and how he should focus on actually establishing and building off that relationship with Rory and Maul instead of just going after them on his podcast and how that's unbusinesslike, unprofessional. So it's very interesting where this goes. You know, like, I'm not that interested in Joe Budden because, like, he's he's Joe Budden. I mean, he he yells to get his point across. Like, how can he, like, support that, you know? The man is, like, he he waxes so poetic about people... uh, writing poetry to one another i mean that's basically rap and and i enjoy rap music but let's just be honest it's people writing poetry to one another it's grown men writing poetry you know so and i like i don't like hip-hop you know i like certain uh hip-hop artists you know i like playboy cardi and lil uzi i enjoy uh earl sweatshirt and 
Pusha T and ASAP Rocky. I mean, there's certain uh, artists that I enjoy within that space, but uh, yeah, it, it's it, that is what it is, you know. Oh no, I think when Joe Budden gets mad, he looks like Charmander. You know, like like he really looks like Charmander when he like gets mad. You could just see the fire at the end of the at the end of his tail. You know, like it's it's hilarious when you see it in real time. But imagine if like jo- like Rory and Maul joined Charlemagne's Black Effect Network. Like that would be such an own for Charlemagne. Like, and I'm not even like the like the biggest Charlemagne fan, but like I can at least respect his work and like what he's done for like in terms of like the mental health space, how he sort of normalized that within his community. I think that's pretty good. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Joe Budden has his problems. Uh, and I don't know where the pop will go from here, but I think he's going to be in under this downward spiral. And I, I don't think he's going to have a sliver of the audience that he had with Rory and Maul. I think he's going to get smaller and smaller uh, listeners and followers because his his life is just so intertwined with hip-hop culture that it's sort of hard to not discuss it. I mean, he dropped a podcast today. I'm filming this on a Wednesday. He filmed this podcast released it and he just talked about Rory and Maul and Olivia Doe for like 10 minutes combined so that's not a good stat to see that really isn't and he's so steeped into hip-hop culture that it's sort of difficult for Joe Bunnan to not talk about himself and that just fuels his ego his narcissism his sociopathy and yeah it seems like he has some form of bipolar disorder as well you know i'm not a therapist whatsoever but the signs are there like the man needs some help um i don't know if he's going to start the podcast because he sort of needs the podcast to make a living but yeah that's sort of my thoughts on joe budden uh yeah i don't know what else to say (laughs) i really don't because yeah I didn't have any topics to talk about today. I'm sorry. Like, I really didn't. There's only so much line open I can discuss with the, with tennis. Like, I can only discuss the line open for that for two for that long. Because, I mean, because the, the the amount of players that are playing the line open is, is a fraction of what it was with the Barcelona Barcelona Open and the Monte Carlo Open. So I'm sorry. Like, but this, these are the topics that you're getting today. I'm I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, okay. Let's let's end it with Ellen. Okay, let's end this with Ellen. So Ellen is ending her show after 19 seasons, citing how she's getting older and taking and how the show takes too much time out of her day. Uh, Ellen recently came, not recently, but in the past like five, six months, came under fire for mistreating her workers and her staff while the show was still going on and uh, being a bully and... That definitely led to a lot of people, and rightfully so, uh, going after Ellen for that. Because, like, if you're sort of uh, portraying a character on screen and sort of acting as if you are that individual and how you're telling other people to be kind to others, but you're not viewing other people that same way, I I think that's kind of a double... I think that in and of itself begs people to view you differently. And I, I think that when you show fraudulence then people are just going to eat you up for it and rightfully so because you show your true colors so and again 
Ellen DeGeneres lives in Santa Barbara, and anybody who lives in Santa Barbara knows that Ellen is a dick. Uh, she's a horrible customer. Uh, she regularly gets mad at and like people that work at retail stores and restaurants. And as a result, because of her harassment claims against her, her ratings have begun to tank. Like a lot of people now view her as a fraudulent individual, as an individual that hasn't really kept it honest and been straightforward about who she actually is as an individual uh, or as just a person that she's tried to portray herself on television for people to watch her and for people to like her. And, you know, again, like once you don't stay true to your word, you are viewed as a hypocrite and you are viewed as an individual that people can trust. And that's what happened with Ellen, a person that sort of put herself as one character, but had a complete 180 behind scenes. And I think overall, I think it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good decision to end the show because end it while any more opinion can go against you. I mean, she's 63 years old. I mean, she's not young by any means. I mean, she looks pretty young, uh, but yeah, I, I think this is a pretty good thing for Ellen because, like, I, I think it may get worse from the, from here if she actually did have, like, if she actually did, like, continue the talk show after, like, 20 seasons because I think there will be more and more stories in the ne in the few, next few years to come about her mistreatment of her workers and whatnot if she was able to continue with the show. So I think that it's good because she's able to leave while she's somewhat semi-presentable or likable, you know, somewhat, not a lot, but just somewhat likable uh, within her demo, within her audience, like within her like soccer mom, you know, yoga mom, eat, pray, love demo. So that's, that's what I kind of believe. Anyways, I mean, Ellen had a pretty bad quarantine. Like, she really did. I mean, in the beginning of the quarantine, she said that being in lockdown was like being in prison. Uh, her workplace harassment allegations came to light. Dwindling ratings as well. Um, and yeah, there is a, a difference between prison and quarantine, Ellen. Because in quarantine, you don't get, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't get that icky goo, you know? You don't get that icky goo up your system, so. But man, Ellen's early comedy specials, not to like deviate away too much from the point, but Ellen's early comedy specials were really good. I mean, that Taste This, I was gonna say that is, no, Taste This was a pretty good comedy album. It, it, I mean, it was witty, observational, at certain points in time, it was absurd. I mean, it was a very, interesting comedy album to wouldn't it oh, to at least listen because i mean she was very like funny <laughs> like i mean it's a guilty pleasure of mine to like listen to like old ellen's like comedy albums because like she at one point was funny but i think she turned away from that and tried to be tried to market herself by like this kind of form of identity politics that made really no sense whatsoever i mean she was famous for like having a show on Ellen that didn't really get any ratings. The Ellen DeGeneres show before the Ellen show, the Ellen DeGeneres show that didn't really get any ratings. She like came out, she went on Oprah and like, she's sort of like an Oprah darling, like a descendant of that Oprah, fa of that Oprah family tree. Uh, 
uh, similar to what we were talking about the Joe Rogan family tree early on in this podcast. So, I mean, it, it's sort of interesting, like, to see, like, the overall arc of Ellen because it's kind of weird to say, like, Ellen at one point was funny, you know? Like, similar to SNL, like, Ellen at one point was at least funny. And to see her, like, be like this is kind of weird. But anyways... All right, so that is the end of this podcast, guys. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for tuning in. Type in the OJ Tucker podcast on YouTube. You will see my link, and you'll be redirected to my channel. Uh, click the bell icon for notifications if you're watching on YouTube. Click like and subscribe as well. And with no further ado, I'll end this podcast. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy your weekend. Avoid the bookings. And we'll talk on Tuesday. We'll talk about the French Open and the matches that will happen over that Monday. I mean, I'm filming on Monday, so it'll be a little bit difficult to talk about the matches. But nonetheless, we'll we'll discuss about the French Open regardless. So anyways, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I'll see you guys on Tuesday. All right, guys. Peace. See you all.